This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com view. everybody and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Ari Clark and today on our panel we have Tessa. Hello. Ben Hong. Hello. And Chris Fritz. Hey there. Wow, Chris, that was not creepy at all. <laughs> it was supposed to be like my 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 classical NPR voice. Oh, okay. Like, hey there, you're listening to NPR WPFM. It did sound pretty creepy though. Like when I when I heard it coming out of my mouth, it's just like, ooh. <laughs> Ooh, that wasn't what I wanted. That wasn't what I wanted at all. This is another one of the voices well, that you and YC earned. <laughs> <laughs> but that's actually a bit on topic, communication. So today we Whoa. are talking about, I know, right? Impressed with myself right now. Relevant. <laughs> Turn it around into a segue. Anyway, Chris. Today, we are talking about component communication and common situations, questions, issues that we have encountered. So Tessa, let's start off with you. What are some questions you've heard people ask or you've had yourself? Yeah, I've heard a lot that in the view world, the pattern that you want to follow is props down, events up. And I think once I even like led a group meditation for a view community that was like props down, events up as we breathed in and out. <laughs> That's amazing. That's beautiful. That's amazing. So great. But a lot of the pieces on this are a bit more vague when it comes to the abstractions. Why? Like, it's something that I feel like if you try other paradigms, it starts to feel a little bit less smooth. But I would love to learn more about like the specific mechanics behind this approach versus something else, like maybe passing callbacks. Chris, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. So that's like, I was doing React before I did View. And that's, that's basically what you did. You, you passed a function for what you wanted to happen. And then like the child component was in charge of deciding what to do with that function. And I've, I've even heard from a lot of React people that like, yeah, I just find that so simple. Like everything is props. Like there's just like one, one less thing to worry about. But the, the event system in view does, does have a, a lot of pretty significant advantages in that it like allows you to tie in with vModel you know, by having like a, a very specific pattern to follow so that you can do like two-way data binding that is really still one-way, very safe data binding, but just like simpler with less syntax. And it also allows you to do things like, you know, V on colon click dot prevent for when you want to like do really common things like prevent propagation. And it always seems strange to me that like you define this this event, like when I was doing React, you define this event that you want to happen, and then you really have to define like an event handler around that. So let's say you want to like search when you click on the search button, and you want to like when you click on the search button specifically, you want to prevent propagation, and so you have to define like a run search method, and then also an on search button click method that just runs the run search method right after event.stoppropagation. 
that always seemed like weird. It's like, it's kind of annoying that like we have to create that method when all I want to do is this one simple thing. Or actually, no, 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 sorry. Prevent, I I misspoke. Prevent does prevent default and stop propagation. (laughs) I think I, I think I said that wrong. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're going to call me on that? No, I was going to let it slide because eventually you, no, you should let it. it slide. So. <laughs> you let it slide. People are going to try that and they're going to be like, why? Why didn't they warn me? Why did no one else say anything? Yes. There, there is a difference between dot stop and dot prevent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, which is really, really nice. And that's why we have like a special, a special API for events in view. To, to allow you to do these things, basically just like preventing more boilerplate that is really, really, really common in all applications. Yeah, I remember when I first switched from React to Vue, I had a really hard time adjusting to slash remembering that instead of passing callbacks, I was supposed to be passing props and then catching the events. But now that I'm looking at some code that is doing like all of this callback passing stuff, I feel like there needs to be a specific handler for every single thing that a component might do. Like I have my on click and my on change and my on update and like they all need separate callbacks. And I feel like it makes the component a little bit more brittle, but I'm not sure if it's, it's not necessarily better or worse. It's just like a different shape for communication with that component. If it makes sense. Cause an argument that I've heard is like, if you pass callbacks, then that ensures like a more, what's the right word? Like an, an API for that component that is more likely to be consistently used by developers. And I could see the argument for that, but I'm not like 100% convinced that this callback pattern would do it any more than events and props. Yeah, so to clarify, are you talking about examples where you have like an input, let's say, and like there are a lot of different events that that might emit and having to add like to the, like let's say this is a base input component and there's an input element inside of it, having to add to the element like at input, at change, at focus, at blur, like anything that could possibly happen to that component uh, yeah. and then p- passing that, like delegating that up to the parent just in case they might listen for it. So it's basically like if I had like a, a search input, right? And I wanted different things to happen when the search button was pressed and then the search input box itself was importing my base input. And then where the search input imports the base input, instead of listening to listening for any events coming from the base input, it's like the base input has props for any events that I want my search input to hook into. Got it. So I, I think there's a, a couple different patterns that people use to solve this kind of problem that I see. And one of them I would recommend never using. And this is the dot .native modifier for Vion. And I, I've actually, like before I, I left the Vue team, I convinced the rest of the team to remove it in Vue 3. Ben, is that still the plan? Yes, I believe so. <laughs> okay, beautiful. Because basically it assumes knowledge of, of the component. It, it assumes it knows, or that it assumes that the parent component knows what the root element is, which the parent component shouldn't care about. You should be able to change the root element without breaking the component. It's like an implicit contract that you don't even know exists when you're looking at that component, that the parent cares about what the root element is. Oh, okay. Can we back up just a second? Can you explain yeah. what .native does? 
And yeah, yeah. So d- dot native use it. listens for it changes that event instead of listening for an event emitted by the component. It listens for an event emitted by that root element. And thank you for for asking that question, Ari, to to make me clarify that. Does that make sense? No, I'm still lost. <laughs> so let's say you have like a base input component, and inside that base input component, the you only have one element, and it's an input element. If you if you have dot native in the parent component where you're using the base input component, then if you have like at click dot native, for example, it'll listen for a click not emitted from the base input component, but emitted by the root element of the base input component, which in this case is an input. Now, let's say that changes a little bit and you decide you want to wrap all of your inputs in a label. And I'm then you're listening for like a click on a label, which, which might work. But then what happens when you're listening for like blur or focus? Like things, things start to getting weird and, and they don't always work as you expect them to. And so what I recommend doing instead is in never using the dot .native modifier for Vian and in child components, when you want to delegate like any, like any listeners that you don't already take care of to some child component, you can add Vian equals dollar sign listeners. And that makes it so that like, and if you add that to the input, like in our example, if you add that to the input element of the base input component, then any like at click, at blur, at focus, you know, anything, anything you can think of at input, at change, all of these will be just delegated to that input element. And it doesn't matter if it's the root element or not, that it'll always work. So the, the parent will be able to use the base input component basically exactly like it's an actual input element, except with superpowers, like with fancy labels and stuff. <laughs> so I so that's, on- that just oh. simplifies the model for people. Yeah, go ahead, Tessa. I remember on one of my previous teams, like whenever there was some issue catching Actually, I don't, I don't know what the issue was, but basically a lot of times when there was some issue with using like a third-party libraries component and getting whatever data was needed, people would just throw a, a .native on their event listener and then it would catch whatever event it was. So I was curious if you could expand more on what problems you've seen people trying to solve with .native. Well, I, I think they're trying to solve the same, the same problem of like not having to list every single event that they might want to care about like in the child component because that's that's really annoying I you know see. instead of listening like at blur at click and stuff like that and dot native happens to work in this case if the element that they want to delegate events to is the root element of the child component but it breaks as soon as that's not true i see okay yeah i get you now I think I was a little confused because the example that I'm, I was thinking about before with like the search input and the input is that like having specific event handlers for every event that we do want to listen to from the original input in that search input 
is a deliberate design decision, like as some way of making, of documenting the API of the component, I guess. The intention is if you have a named prop that is a handler for only the events we want, then a developer looking at it would know what events we're listening to on that component, I guess, is the thought there. I'm not sure if that that's making well, sense. Well, you already like, even having a prop for it, like, like let's say you have in like a base input uh, component, like even the fact that it uses an input element inside of it, like really is an implementation detail. Like it shouldn't care about that. It could actually be like a text area that's just really thin and maybe expands. Like maybe that's what you want for all of your inputs. You know, like as people like press enter, like, so you have like an auto sizing text area. I've, I've seen that before. I've done that before. So having some kind of prop called input events makes you already think about in the parent, the fact that this child component has an input element somewhere in it. And we shouldn't care about that. It should just work like an input element. That's, that's all we really want. It doesn't have to actually be an input element. That makes sense. I think one of the concerns that this pattern is looking to address is like, well, if I just be binds to all the listeners, then any rando developer could just hijack whatever event they want on my search input box. But if I have these defined event handlers on the API, then they will just stick to those methods. So what are some ways that we can recommend for communicating what a component is and how a component is intended to be used in a way that's more in keeping with props down events up versus passing callbacks, if that makes sense? Yeah. So in the case where like you're, you're passing something like input events prop, that is, is basically the same kind of pattern, although like not taking, not taking advantage of, of like Vian dollar sign listeners, the, like the, the fact that we already have API for that. And if you needed to have like different listeners for different sub, like sub elements inside the component, like that seems like not an ideal situation because you do know about the implementation details then. But, you know, in some cases it may be unavoidable. You know, maybe that is like the best compromise that you can make. But in general, like I, I don't find myself wanting to restrict what people have access to on a specific element. If they want to listen for the focus event, and even though I didn't plan for it, they should be able to. Like there, are, there aren't usually a lot of cases where I want to restrict that. And so it's, it's still very declarative in that we've defined that like all listeners, or if you want like a subset of listeners, you could use a computed property that strips out some listeners that you don't, that you want to like blacklist because let's say you're handling them, you know, some other way would just be passed on to that component or that element. Does that make sense? Yeah. When you said uh, not taking advantage of beyond listeners, what kind of advantages do you think that brings beyond? Like I don't have to manually specify every event that I want to listen for. It means a smaller API. Like the parent doesn't have to worry about this special prop called input listeners. It can just treat it exactly like a normal input element, except with superpowers. So it can do all the same things. If it passes a prop that, you know, I, I, ideally, like this is part of the, the, the transparent wrapper component pattern. 
So when you have something that is like basically wrapping some kind of element or representing some kind of element, we should have it so that like any props that aren't defined are passed as attributes to that element. And any listeners that don't have special behavior defined for them are just passed on to that element too. So that way, like you don't have to think about, oh, does like, does it let me, if I do at click, will it show the click for the actual input? Or if I do, you know, if I pass a placeholder, will it add a placeholder to that? Or does it need like a placeholder prop defined? That's where like V on dollar sign listeners and V bind dollar sign adders solves that problem. Like tells you like, hey, this, this is the component that we should use. This is the component that we should like delegate any anonymous stuff to. Clarify V bind adders is basically like any, anything that I put in the component in the template will be attached to the child. Yeah. So the, the dollar sign adders object in a view component contains all of the attributes passed to that component from a parent that are not defined as props. Except for class style and ID, right? There's like three exceptions. Yeah. But the, those, I mean, for, from my understanding, those exceptions, I, I don't know if it, it could be taken back, but those exceptions would not no longer exist in view three. <laughs> yeah, those, those are very annoying. Yeah. I think maybe perhaps Tessa listening to, I've heard similar concerns regarding like the desire to, I think when people are justifying this desire to document like the callbacks, right? Like these are the input listeners and they're saying they're being more explicit. Sometimes I think in the work I've done is that a lot of times it's, it does feel a little bit like magic when you be buying something like dollar sign listeners or dollar sign adders, like what, what is going on. And so typically, um, usually I found it's helpful to sort of walk through the developers with sort of like the way things work natively. Cause then that's, that's part of it, right? If people don't understand how it works natively, defining it explicitly gives them that feeling of control of like, I know explicitly what this word, not realizing that the APIs already exist. And so I think to some of Chris's point, when talking to other developers, it is about learning to really leverage existing APIs that already solve the problems that we're trying to come up with, right? I know as developers, sometimes we often find ourselves in the tra- uh, sort of trap of trying to be clever or trying to come up with these you know, neat little design patterns. But a lot of times there are already built in, like a lot of thought has been put into the existing Vue 2 API and to try and remove those boilerplate things to make our lives easier. So I mean, I think that's something to, worth thinking about too. Yeah, and I'm I'm struggling to empathize with like what the advantage would be about having to know what all these named callbacks are versus like having to know what events I would be listening for because I feel like either way I'll end up looking at the component anyway, but somehow I feel like usually with the specific event handler callback style, I more often will find myself in, I think you had a name for it in the ridiculously reusable components workshop, but like a prop hell or something where I'll have my component and then like (laughs) 30 lines of props that I'm passing down. And Mm -hmm. that's like the worst feeling. Yeah. When you feel like you're looking at a component, it's like a dictionary. You look at that long list, you're like, oh gosh. (laughs) And then navigating that scroll up and down to be like, this piece goes here, which then goes down here and then goes back up here. It's... (laughs) Yeah, I've seen some components that have a larger API than Vue itself. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> it certainly is amazing. <laughs> oh God, have I done this? Oh no. I mean, Vue Vue doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have a huge API like to begin with, so it's it's actually not that hard. <laughs> 
Speaking of like passing down the data you need via props and like trying to preemptively defensively build some kind of structure around that communication. Another pattern that I see a lot is like having several series of several generations of components. So like I'll have some great grandparent component whose ultimate goal is to use some child component and the child component expects a certain prop. And then the child sets a default for that prop in the child. But then the child's parent theoretically could pass down a prop to that child. But then the parent is also setting a default for that prop. And then the grandparent is importing the parent and passing down the prop, but also setting a default for that prop. And then the great grandparent (laughs) is setting a default and passing down the prop. And then maybe the great grandparent either doesn't set a value for the prop or is getting it from like a mix-in or something. But the end result is it seems like a long series of like components setting a default for and passing down props. And one argument that I've heard for this pattern is to avoid some kind of type error when the child ultimately gets the prop and it's like the wrong type or something. But to me, what it seems like is then each each generation is setting the default for a prop where they're not even necessarily using the prop, so they don't need to know what type it is, which makes it hard to debug. But there's definitely like other situations where maybe you don't set a default for the prop, but you still need to get some data from the great-grandparents somehow all the way down to that child. And every time I, I get into that situation, I'm always like, oh, I feel like I heard several ways to get around this issue, but I can never seem to remember any of them. Yeah, so to, 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 to clarify, are you talking about the, the kind of example where you have a prop that you want to like pass down to some like, you know, grandchild somewhere or, or great-great-grandchild? And you have to pass that through a bunch of components in between that actually don't care about that prop and don't use it anywhere except to pass it further down the chain. Yes, that's exactly. And you have to modify those components specifically just to provide that context and then keep keep that prop moving. We'll call that the prop train pattern. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> can that, okay, can so that what's the solution? Like theme song. <laughs> Riding on the prop train. <laughs> So I'm making Chris it a blue said, is there a better way to do this? Well, what do you usually do, Ari? I want to say that... Okay, so I've definitely done the prop train. And I could totally be misremembering this here. But if I'm not mistaken, you don't necessarily have to declare a prop in the props of a component. If it received it, you can pass it down. Which I realize then you sort of lose some context when you're looking at the code. but there's less code. <laughs> there are some times when one, one solution that I use to this is just like adding vbind adders to a specific child component so that we don't have to define any props there. And anything that's not a prop, it'll assume, okay, well, this is maybe something that this component cares about. So we'll pass it down as, as that component. And I have a specific example here. So I have like a, in view enterprise boilerplate, I have a base icon component. And the, the default source for my icons is Font Awesome. And when we, and the, the, the font, font Awesome has a Font Awesome icon component that I use inside Base Icon. And if they want to add something to like, you know, give it some special animation, I think uh, it has, the Font Awesome icon has like a, a spin prop that can be passed to it. 
So if the source is font awesome icon, then I like render the font awesome icon component and then delegate all of the adders to that. So if people want to use some kind of font awesome specific feature, they can do that. And that way I don't have to define like all the props that that component uses just in case we might need to pass them on. You can use adders in the same way. Adders is just like any attributes or props that this component doesn't care about. I mean, why would you do that when you could have so much fun when you need to add a new prop? You could then revisit your code for like three different components just to get it there. I, yeah, I mean, well, that I mean, sounds that so pattern, much fun. The pattern doesn't always make sense. It, <laughs> there are sometimes props that you want to pass down to even multiple components. And there's not like one single subcomponent that it makes sense to just pass any attributes to. And so then in that case, yeah, you're put in a situation where, like, let's say you're using Guillaume's excellent B tooltip component. And there are, there are some things that you want to change for the tooltip, you know, some like props that you want to expose in the parent. And you, you might add like a tooltip class, tooltip text, that kind of thing. When you, when you just want to pass some, some specific stuff for the tooltip or in some cases, like that, that doesn't even make sense. And you might want to make this state global, like in Vuex. So for example, we have like some kind of settings page. And you know, the, the user has a bunch of settings. These are, these are global. But within settings, we have so many different components and like nested child components that might need access to the settings so that they can change them. In that case, I think it often makes more sense to keep that state global and have the components that need to access them, access them rather than passing it all from some top level, like user settings page component. Going back to your example about font awesome, I'm not sure if I missed this, but I just want to confirm if I have some grandparent that has the font awesome data, and then it's going through a couple of other component layers to get to the icon component. Can I just put vbind adders on the icon component or do I have to put that on every component in between as well? Well, if it's going through multiple layers, then yeah, you would have to do it for all of the components in between. Yeah, so that, that doesn't always make sense. Like it, it doesn't, there isn't always a single like subcomponent or element that it makes sense to delegate like all anonymous attributes to. Yeah, and so in that case, like that's where sometimes UX can be more helpful. Or in some cases, you know, I, I think it's, this is a pattern that it would be easy to overuse, but Vue also has a, a provide inject feature that allows you to provide a context to tiled components. And I think my, my favorite use for this is when you have some kind of parent component that the child components only make sense as children or maybe even grandchildren of this component. So let's say you have a Google map component and you have Google map markers. Google map markers are never going to exist outside of a Google map, but they might need access to the instance of the map that the Google map component provides. So you can, in the Google map component, provide, you know, the actual like map variable. And then any child components can choose to inject the map into themselves so that they can access it 
and manipulate it, for example, to add markers, you know, with specific icons or, and, and with specific like labels and stuff like that. And to clarify, when Chris says uh, provides the data, there's actually literally a provide property you would define on yeah. your component. And an inject property. Mm-hmm. And that would remove all the necess- necessity to pass things down the prop train. But yeah, that, that, skip all that. that pattern only makes sense when you have child components or grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, whatever they are. That only makes sense when at some point in their ancestry, there is something like a Google map that will provide this. And uh, a good way of, of like thinking about whether that might be the case is if it makes sense to have Google map or whatever the name of that root component is that is providing stuff be the, the prefix to all of these other components where you're injecting. And if it doesn't make sense, then th- that isn't a good use for provide inject. If it does make sense, like for Google map markers or Google map directions or whatever it happens to be, then you have a great case for provide inject. So it sounds like half my app should be that. (laughs) It's pretty much like every feature is like this list item, this list. (laughs) Yeah, maybe, maybe. But like it, it, you only, I would only still introduce it if you find yourself like having to pass down all these props like Tessa was talking about where like the components don't even care about them. Like it's just, it's just more boilerplate. I'm definitely guilty of doing that sometimes. <laughs> oh, me too. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I've only experienced some of the better patterns to some of these anti-patterns that I'm talking about or like, you know, painful patterns. I mean, sometimes they, they make sense until they start feeling bad. You know, it's never black or white. Like all code is compromise. And so, Chris, one of the things about, you know, especially for the listeners, before you like go out and just start immediately refactoring everything to provide and inject, there are certainly some caveats when it comes to the reactivity part of it. You want to speak a little bit to that? Sure. Yeah. If you provide something, it's not automatically made reactive. You know, unlike, for example, in data with you two, like if you define something in data, then it's automatically made reactive. That's not so with, with provide. And so if you want to provide something from data, then you'll have to do so after the data has already been defined. Yeah, there are some ways to make it reactive, but um, I think there are a couple of libraries that a couple of core team members have created, but it's not definitely not reactive out of the box and have it has its caveats. So if you're thinking of using it, please like read into the documentation and learn how it actually works. So you don't, yeah, you should figure out those gotchas. Yeah, I mean, I, I would be surprised if you learned enough about how it works to use it just from us talking. <laughs> Definitely read the docs anyway. Yes. Yeah, I still have no idea how to use it just from you all talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we're not, I'm not trying to give people an understanding. I think that would be really boring to listen to, honestly, like without being able to see examples and stuff like that and, and play around with stuff. Yeah, go, go, go read the docs. I was going to say we put a lot of work into them, but I, mean, that's I, so- I put a lot of work into them. That is so true. put a lot of work into them. <laughs> So basically provide and inject is like if I have some great grandchild that has that requires like maybe the design is that it has a required prop. But I know that a lot of the time the parent, the direct parent wouldn't have the data for that prop. That's where I would use this provide and inject pattern. And then just be aware that that would not necessarily be that wouldn't be reactive. Maybe. But like, again, I would only use it in the cases where it doesn't make sense to 
just pass a prop. It doesn't make sense to use Vue X. I'd only do it when all the other patterns that we've talked about doesn't make sense. And, mm-hmm. and you can make it reactive. You can like define it in data and then like pass a function to like get that data. I have an example of that that I can leave in the show notes. I think, yeah, I have like a little code pen or something like that. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. When you were asking Ari, like, what do you usually do in this situation? I thought about myself and I was like, oh, I always cry. And then... (laughs) (laughs) That too. And then problem solved. (laughs) It's like, oh, I wonder if provide and inject would be a good use case for this. And then it remembers that like, I don't know what that is. And like, I think at the beginning of the year, one time I was heading into work and I got really excited because Michael Thiessen has this newsletter. And one, one day, the topic of the newsletter was provide and inject has nothing to do with dependency injection. And he was like, oh, a lot of people assume that it's following this pattern, which like, I don't know what either of these patterns are. And he was like, and here's how I'm debunking that. And then he's like, so what is it actually good for? You'll have to stay tuned for that next newsletter. And I don't think it's come out yet. So I'm like, (laughs) gosh, cliffhanger. Isn't he coming on soon? We'll have to ask. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yes. Maybe when View 3 comes out is when he'll release that newsletter. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he was too optimistic about the release date. Yeah, I will say with the provide inject, one of the drawbacks to that is it's not always immediately clear where the like, because you're providing injecting certain data properties, it's sort of like the mix-in effect where like sometimes it's a little bit hard to figure out where something came from, which is why I think to Chris's advice, the more that if you can be sure that they'll be like tightly coupled together, it's less likely when you do a generic component that you're just like, wait, where is this like random injective property coming from? And then you have to search your whole code base to see what components are providing what. So it's just something to keep in mind um, as you start, as people start to experiment with that. Yeah. And, and there are some improvements being made to provide inject for Vue 3 to, to make it just like more pleasant to use. And if you're using Vue 2, it, it's already more pleasant to use with the composition API in the sense that you can just define some reactive data if you want something to be reactive and then like use the provide function. Like in in that setup function for your view component. It, as long as the, the view to like demo composition API includes provide and check, I don't remember if it does. Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head. I want to revisit something you said about when we were talking about provide and check with the names, how you would put like the Google Maps in the name of the component. And I remember in the view style guide, you had a section or there is a section on, on naming. And I've heard people refer to this as like, oh, that reminds me of Hungarian notation back in the day. I'm not really sure what that means, but I was wondering if, if you could share also like good naming tips that help developers when they're looking at components in say a template without going to the component, like conveying more information about the component. That makes sense. I think I overcomplicated my question, but like, you know, good, <laughs> good naming tips or patterns. I would say read the view style guide that I put a lot of work into. And it has a lot of different recommended rules on naming. And some of those can even be enforced with ESLint plugin view, which if you're using view CLI and you turn on, like if you choose to include ESLint, you can, you can also choose to change the, the, the base from the, the default, which is basically to just like catch errors to just the strongly recommended stuff, 
the recommended stuff or like everything. I forget the categories that, that we defined, but we tried to match in ESLint plugin view the kind of categories that we have in the style guide itself. And that yeah, level of like opinionated. ESLint plugin view threw in a couple of extras and I never filed a ticket about that, but I, I don't know if it's resolved or not. Well, you had a problem with it? Yeah, like where it was, it was changing. I think what it was doing was it was changing my props to be kebab case from camel case or something, but it wasn't in the style guide, but it was included as like in the template. Only recommended. Yeah. In the template. I think that that is appropriate. I realize some people don't like that, but I'm okay with it. (laughs) Fortunately, any of the rules can be disabled or, or, or you can change it so that it enforces like the opposite. Like, you know, it can enforce like whatever style you want. And we like the ESM plugin view tries to be pretty unopinionated about that with defaults that we think will make sense for most people. But anything you want to change, you absolutely can. And I have examples. If you, if anyone has trouble setting up ESLint plugin view, if you look at View Enterprise Boilerplate and the ESLintRC.js, then there's a really good example of how I at least like to set up ESLint and, and my projects and how I use ESLint plugin view and even some uncategorized rules that are even like too opinionated for any of the categories and how I, I add some of those in for a little bit of extra. Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah. Just like <laughs> can't make any mistakes. I tried, I tried to adopt your, your linter settings last year and I was having this huge problem where like the rules existed in some specific commit that you were getting from ESLint plugin view, but I couldn't find it on ESLint plugin view. So it kept on being like these rules don't exist. Really? Like, yeah, I don't know what that was. But that might have been a temporarily temporary problem that I fixed. I don't remember. How long ago was that? Like six months or more. Oh gosh, I don't remember the problems I fixed six months ago. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, hopefully the attribute thing is also is also gone now. It was it was more of a like I was surprised where it had an opinion where I thought it wouldn't it would just not care. Yeah, but where it does have opinions, you can't override them. Yeah. That's the good news. I would say back to your question though, Tessa, for those listening, I know my favorite tip that I learned from Chris's uh, pattern workshop is when it comes to naming things in connection with what we were talking about regarding communication. I'm sure a lot of developers are familiar with like categorize, uh, like sort of organizing the components in folders, you know, directories. So in the case of like the search bar, we were talking about there would be like a search folder. And inside search, you would have like an input and then like those kind of components. And so one thing I really liked that Chris had recommended was to actually rather than do it via like organizing via folders, which is fine, but like name your components in a way that when they are dependent on each other, the name is impl- like it explicitly defines that. So if like in the, in, the, in the case of like the search input that we've been talking about, instead of just naming like putting it in a folder search and then naming your you know, component just input.view, right? Because then you'd be like, you think that's like search input, like mentally, but actually like name the component search input. And if search input has like, I don't know, a label for whatever reason that the label is the child, then it should be search input label. Like explicitly setting those names in those components sort of like basically um, defines like a hierarchy where you can see that relationship. And that way, when someone uses search input label inside of like a to-do list, you're going to be like, that's, that's weird. <laughs> like this is a to-do like area. Like this is the, the concern is different. And then that's where you can 
start to figure out some of those refactoring opportunities and such. And it gives you the benefits of structuring things in folders without any of the drawbacks. I've, I've seen projects with like dozens of button.view components because each of them is in like some subfolder where they're a button for the thing that they are in a folder for. And it's, ah, it drives me absolutely crazy. And even worse is like the ones with just like tons of index.view components. I was just about to say that <laughs> now. It makes me so happy. I love it. Oh, it, it drives me absolutely nuts because you try to search for something in any editor that I've ever used with the quick file search. It shows the name of the file front and center in like big white text and then sort of grayed and then often not even completed with ellipses. You have the actual like folder that it's in. And sometimes like there's not even enough room for it to show the full file path. And so all you see is that like it's in source, components, dashboard, and then like you don't see anything else. You don't see any of the relevant context. <laughs> so it's almost impossible to tell which thing this is a button for. <laughs> oh my gosh. I have experienced this for So, I mean, I do both. I do organize by folder, but within that folder, I still use the naming convention of prefixing it with usually the name of the folder. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've seen folder organization structures that I've liked. I, I want to be clear on that. I've never seen one that I've liked that's more than one folder deep. <laughs> yeah, no, God. <laughs> that's just blasphemy. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I, I got tired of scrolling my really, really long list of components. So I started moving them into folders with each new feature. I have yet to work on an app that has a flat structure, but one can dream. <laughs> And, and some people argue like, oh, but that couldn't possibly work. But like, I've, I've talked to people who work at Facebook who I think have something like, I don't know, it's, it's some absurd amount of components. It's like 40,000 or something like that. I, I don't, don't quote me on this. I don't remember. It's like a large, a very large amount of component. Maybe it's like 4,000, but 4,000 seems small. That seems low. I think it's more than that. But they have a huge amount of components with a flat structure. And I've seen this in like a lot of other, very large organizations that I've worked with. And no one that I know has like had huge problems with it. Yeah, I believe Dan Abramov is also like a very vocal advocate for the the flat structure. He is. I've talked to Dan about it. (laughs) One potential disadvantage of the folder structure is if then you don't also follow this like uh, most broad to narrow category of naming style like Ari does within the folder structure. Because like, if I already have the folder, why do I also have to give it the name of the folder? Then you lose some of the advantages of when you don't want to scroll or look in the folder and you just want to search for the component using like this. I don't, I don't know how it works in other editors, but in VS Code, how you can pull up the command line and then type in the name of your file and it will pull mm-hmm. it up. Yeah, and I would say, I know um, for those who might have some resistance to it, it does take some getting used to at first because it feels nice to organize things in folders, especially if you're the one doing it. But you know, I think people have that experience where if you go into a legacy code base and then you just see like discoverability becomes like impossible, especially when you have to Chris's point, like folders going beyond one level deep, finding anything and understanding how everything works, um, let alone when you need to refactor things, you have to go update all the paths everywhere. Like, oh my gosh, it's it's a nightmare. My favorite experience was working on a view app that was in Java. So like I mean with Java, so all of the view app was contained inside a JS folder. 
And then every, every section had its own folder with subfolders. And then we kept our specs in like another folder set that basically mimicked the structure of the app folder. Oh my God. <laughs> so you had to maintain Oof. both. It was super fun. I loved it. I mean, that's a really <laughs> common pattern with tests. Like, well, people, people will do that. Although I prefer to keep my unit tests like adjacent to the file yeah, testing. Because generally, you don't ever have to worry together. about this problem. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But also like, generally, if, I, if I'm looking at the test, I'm probably also going to want to look at the component and vice versa. So yeah, that does make your <laughs> linting setup a little bit more complicated, but just look at the enterprise boilerplate and see how I yeah. do it. And go, yeah, that's how you do it. <laughs> I've never had a problem for that reason. <laughs> And then you get the added bon- benefit of knowing when a component has no tests, like instantly. Yeah, yeah. instantly. Because like, oh, there's no test. You're, you're there and you can see it. <laughs> That's yeah. honestly how I keep track of the tests I have yet to write. Except yeah, for, you know, perfect. the components, because that's just automatically generated for <laughs> a boilerplate. So it's everything else <laughs> that, that doesn't count for. Well, sets of security a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the desire to like over-organize things with folders, like isn't specific to, to components either. Like I've, I've seen a lot of cases where even with like a, like a utils folder with like utility functions. Oh my gosh, yes. Where like people start out, it's like, okay, well, we have like a lot of different functions that start with just filter. Like it's just for filtering different like sets of data. So let's create a filters. And it's like, okay, yeah, this feels okay for now. And they realize, well, we're like filtering different models. So let's go like filters and then filter like the different models. And then they also have like, you know, different things that are just reaching into the DOM to do something like (laughs) hacky to like to check something. And so then they'll put like a folder called hacks or a folder (laughs) called like element stuff. Or not element stuff, but like if it is something more more fancy than that, like element interaction. And then you're looking at these and you're like, what the heck are these folders? Like these categories don't make any sense to me. When if you just looked at like the names of the utilities, like it makes perfect sense. And sometimes people are adding these like nested like folders to try to organize what is maybe like 30 different utility functions. It's like, that's not an absurd amount of functions that those all fit on my like normal MacBook Pro screen without some absurd extra monitor. <laughs> Folders feel like we're organizing. I have this, this argument with, uh, I don't know, I shouldn't talk about this. <laughs> Someone that I used to live with really likes organizing things. And they would sometimes put like boxes inside of boxes inside of a drawer. And I would think like, why not just put it inside the drawer? That seems like it's enough. We don't, <laughs> we don't need to keep it from touching all the other things that are often used with it. But like, it felt really organized to have things in like boxes inside of boxes inside of boxes. And that's, that's what folders are. Like, <laughs> sometimes they're really useful. It's definitely useful to have the drawer. If things were just like all over the counter, it wouldn't work as well. But yeah. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's why a lot of the home organization books, their first tip is like, you don't have to go out and buy a bunch of storage containers to start cleaning. And I feel like a lot of times that's what folders is like. If I just put everything in the container, it'll be clean. <laughs> you guys are such haters, I'm just saying. <laughs> so full disclosure, Ari and I used to live together. 
this example is definitely about someone else. Uh, we, were roommates, we were roommates in college, but I'm not talking about you, Ari. This is someone totally unrelated. It's funny because if anyone knows me, um, I'm the least organized person ever, so no one would ever believe you. So. Speaking of things you should you should never do, I heard that some of you have thoughts and experiences with the event bus. And I can't say that I, I've ever known what it's like to work on a view app that <laughs> take advantage of this wonderful vehicle, except for like my own personal <laughs> projects. So I was wondering if we could talk a bit about that. Are right, you want to take it? No. No, no? I do not. Tessa. Um, I don't know how to drive. <laughs> you don't know how to drive the event bus? <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the problems. We have a lot of transportation metaphors in this one. The event <laughs> yeah. bus, the prop train. I mean, we're talking about chaining things together. So yeah, that makes sense. You know, driving things from, or driving data from one point to the other. So yes, there's a lot of transportation metaphors. I think we should coin the provide plane. Because like a plane, flies over things. (laughs) Oh my God. And drops it off where it's needed. I like We are nailing this. Uh, but Chris, I, I have heard you have some opinions on event buses. Yeah. So, I mean, my advice is pretty, pretty succinct, I think. Um, Actually, first, uh, when considering like, whether, I don't think we even need to. If, you're, if you know what an event bus is, or you're thinking about something that is called an event bus that someone told you about, and you're thinking like, oh, this could be really useful for my view app. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't. But yeah, it's, it's basically like some people create event buses either with like a third party library or just with like a new view instance where they use dollar sign on and emit to listen for different events and then emit different events. So let's say you want to like add something to a cart. You can have like an add to cart event that you can emit and then you'll have another listener that listens for add to cart and it does this thing when you want to add to cart. And the problem is that like you can set up a lot of different add to cart listeners and you might decide that you want to. And then it becomes very confusing like what's happening and in what order when you're adding something to a cart. I feel like when someone reaches for the event bus, it's like, you're like, I need the deus ex machina right now. But nobody's ever like... (laughs) You know what my favorite part of the movie was? The dance ex machina. Like, it just doesn't happen. And it, like so many times I've run into a bug where I thought maybe it was event bus related. And then it turned out maybe it wasn't. But I never felt like I could be 100% sure just because it seems like you can just get data out of anywhere. And it, it makes the app like more frustratingly magical than it should be, I think. And there's no logging for it either. Like unlike in UX, where like you have logs of every commit and you can even trace back to where those commits happened. And like what the state was before and what it is now. Like there's it's so much easier to troubleshoot. You have so many more tools. And with namespace modules, which I, I highly recommend if you don't know what they are, I'm not gonna explain them right now, but you can just like search like UX namespace modules and be like, oh, that seems cool. I'll do that. <laughs> and you can also look at View Enterprise boilerplate to see how I actually have all my modules namespaced by default, which is pretty cool. With hot module reloading and some other fancy stuff. No big, no big, deal. No big deal. I know that there are some developers out there who will be really curious and you, you will be tempted. As someone who did 
playing around with the event bus early on, you you will feel it feels very clever at first. You're like, oh, I figured out a way to hack around something, right? Like it's like a high for developers. But um, if you need to do that on a personal project, get it out of your system. But as far as production applications go, <laughs> I promise you, you are not like future you will be very very mad at yourself if you if you decide to use this pattern. It's yeah, not only future you, but future people on the project in yes. general. Because I, my first developer job, I came into a project that was using an event bus. And I... I think you have to start with, hi, my name is Ari. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm recovering from event I'm bus I'm an event usage. bus survivor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I literally had to make this like whole color-coded spreadsheet just to sort of like map out like how data was getting to where it was going. Because oh like not gosh. only were it was an event bus, but props were nested like eight, 10 levels deep. <laughs> it was the worst. And then I introduced Redux and life was a lot better despite the fact that Redux is also a pain. Less so than an event <laughs> bus though. So yes, don't do it. Just don't. And I believe it's going to be gone from View 3, right? I think someone mentioned that in a previous episode. Well, the... Yeah, the, the API is is changing, or at least less. I heard again. I'm not in the in the loop on this stuff anymore. But yeah, I think dollar sign on was going away, and possibly some other stuff. But I mean, people can still like bring in a third. Like there are tons of third party event bus libraries that they can use. Does anyone else have any any last comments they'd like to make before we wrap up? Don't use the event bus. <laughs> if you took nothing else away from this episode. <laughs> All right. Well. Take it from a survivor. <laughs> yeah. Yes. For my sake, please don't. The trauma. Okay, no, I wouldn't go that far. But it was not fun. And I would like to save you all from that not funness. So don't and, do but it. Can you honestly say it's never come up in therapy? I maybe haven't been to therapy since the event bus incident. So <laughs> Wow, things are that bad, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the next episode will be an intervention for Ari. <laughs> okay. She needs counseling for this. And with that, it is time for us to move on to picks. Ben, would you like to go first? So no one can steal your picks. Oh, <laughs> thanks, Ari. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. So for this week, I have actually one pick. I was introduced by a friend, actually Oscar, who we had on the show recently. Again, we've talked a bit about the platform Steam. And so the game is called Slay the Spire. And so for people who like deck building games, basically, it's like a single player sort of RPG where you start at the base of a tower and you sort of fight your way up like the spire, the tower. And so as you like defeat enemies, you're deck grows bigger. So there's a deck, there's a dynamic deck building component because it'll like spawn certain cards based on like a data-driven algorithm. And then you have to like learn to build it and make trade-offs as you construct your deck and move throughout the tower. It's it's really fun like strategy. So if you like that kind of like oh gosh, I'm trying to remember other deck building like board games and stuff, like you might really, really enjoy this one. So highly recommended. Okay. Tessa, would you like to go next? Oh one other quick thing to add. Slay the Spire is coming out on iOS Probably by the time this is released. What? <laughs> Did not know this. <laughs> so, yeah, check that out. Okay, now, Tessa, would you like to go? Sure. Especially recently, there's been a lot of chatter about respectability politics. And it's a term that I 
had a general understanding of, but not specifics. So I was reading more about it and I found this article called Respectability Politics on the Undefeated, which is apparently some like sports, like intersectional sports website. And it goes into more detail about what respectability politics is, what that looks like for black people, what it does and doesn't do for them. And more interestingly, like this idea of private and public transcripts. And I thought it was pretty interesting and a very detailed analysis. So I'll link that. Also, the YouTube algorithm recommended to me this video called Tumblr's Strangest Obsession, A History of the Onesler Fandom, which is apparently a fandom that sprung about in like the 2000s when the Lorax movie came out. And if you don't know what it is, and maybe I'm being naive, but I thought it was surprising like how they took this idea of scanning just one character and then taking it to this logical extreme. And then that reminded me of a video I saw earlier this year that gave me much joy. It's from a, I guess she's a media critic. Her channel is called For Harriet and she reviewed Tyler Perry's movie Acrimony, which you may have seen screenshots of on social media of like, they had like a Twitter, I mean, not a Twitter, a text message conversation, but it was like a screenshot in the iPhotos app and you could see that it was a screenshot in the iPhotos app. Anyway, the review is hilarious. I don't think I'll ever watch the movie, but I loved hearing her telling me what happened in the movie. So those are my picks for the week. Okay. Uh, Chris, you're up next. Okay. My only pick for this week, besides still managing to hijack Ben Slay the Spire pick, is Avatar The Last Airbender, which is a TV show. It's back on Netflix. It's an animated TV show appropriate for like basically all ages. I mean, after a certain age, I mean, you have to like be, I'd probably recommend you will be at least like four to understand it. Something like that. I don't know. I don't know a lot about like child development, (laughs) but it is such, such a great show. The first episode is like a little bit more childish than the rest of it. So if you watch the first episode and you think like, oh, that, this doesn't seem like it's for me. Like the jokes are a little bit like more for kids, it seems. Just keep on watching after the first episode there. Like the, the jokes are more for like both adults and kids. And if you've seen like The Last Airbender, the movie, the like M. Night Shyamalan movie, which I, I haven't seen, but I've heard was like terrible. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. This is not terrible. This is much better. A lot of Avatar The Last Airbender fans were upset when that movie came out. And to That's also comment... And to comment on Chris's pick, yeah, I would say Avatar The Last Airbender is phenomenal. And there's also a sequel for um, Legends of Korra if you really love it. Yeah. So if you get sucked in. I didn't like Legends of Korra as much, but there is... Ooh, I don't know if I should say this. It's a little bit of a spoiler. Yeah, let's, um, let's save it for them then, I think. But let's say if, if you're queer, you know, there might be something for you. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you just said there definitely is. <laughs> Who knows? I watched it, so I don't Who know. Who knows? But, but that's great. Representation matters. So this entire time while you guys have been making your picks, I was racking my brain to come up with one. And all I got <laughs> was one song, Super Liminal by Dead Mouse. It's a good one. And that is, honestly, that's it for this week. So until next time, enjoy the view. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Lino delivers the performance you expect 
at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash view.